Well, good morning, Grace. So good to see you all. My name is Eric Tonis. If you don't know who I am, I'm one of the pastors here, and I've been away for four months, and I'm really glad to be back, and I'm really grateful that I got a sabbatical and was able to take our whole family to live at Hume Lake for the past four months in a cabin there, and that the leaders at Grace and you as a congregation also graciously allowed us to go and truly rest. I have, I don't think, there's been, ever been a time in my life I have felt the need for rest as much as I did back in August, and so the timing was perfect, the setting was perfect, we had a great time. And Ken Hayward, I walked by your family's cabin many times in the past week. Ken, aren't you back there somewhere? There you are, yes, walked by family's cabin several times back there, and it was great. I had several R's that I was trying to go after on my sabbatical. I wanted to remember. I want to spend a lot of time remembering. Remembering who God is, remembering his ways, remembering what he's done for me. I wanted to reflect on those things and not just think about them, but really think about them. I wanted to rest in those things. I wanted to recreate and recreate we did. I, we had lots of adventures, tried to do something every day recreational. And one thing at least a week that was more adventurous than just recreation. And there's plenty of opportunity to do that there. So we had a great time doing that. I wanted to rest and recreate. And I wanted to repent when I became aware of ways that I wasn't remembering God well and his ways well. And so did all of those things. I am refreshed. I'm truly, truly refreshed and feel very rested. I realized how much productivity had become an idol for me. Input and output is what I lived for. And I didn't take me long before I would set up a hammock on the side of the lake and, and you know, in November, October, September, now a lot of people walking by that trail, and I would... I would bring my Kindle and a thermos of coffee and I would be there for three hours and there were days I never even got to the Kindle. I just looked around and thought and prayed and reflected and it was so good. And I, I want to, uh, as my, my kids called me Mountain Daddy, and I want to bring Mountain Daddy back down the mountain with me and um, be more like I was there, here, even though obviously the pace will be different and the responsibilities, but I, I still would, would like to. Uh, be Mountain Daddy in the suburbs. I woke Sam up two weeks ago along with Isaac, and I said, boys, time to wake up for the last day at the Hume Lake Charter School. Now, Hume Lake Charter School has 70 kids, K through 12, 70. It's like Little House on the Prairie. Uh, it was just wonderful. Kids ride their dirt bikes to school and walk into school with a big airsoft rifle strapped to the back. It's just, it's just unbelievable. But... Um, <laughs> Um, and I woke him up and Sam said, oh, can't we stay? I want to stay. And then he said, except for church and my friends and basketball. <laughs> <laughs> I felt the same way. Uh, our church family, all of you, were a massive tug to get on back home, and, and we're so grateful to be here. We had a wonderful time, and we're, we're thankful to you, thankful that we were able to get away and, and have that time. I actually hope none of you are envious. I don't feel like I deserve that kind of thing at all, and I wish you all could have it. 
and would encourage you to figure out how to work Sabbath in to your, your daily routine, which is something I'm going to be working at as well. I'm thrilled to be back. I'm thrilled to be here digging in the Word with you. Love this series, Why Jesus Came. If you look at the Christmas story and look at how much attention is actually paid to the manger scene, which gets all the focus typically around Christmas, it's actually not that much in there. The manger scene does not get the priority. The birth of Jesus is absolutely essential because it brings divine and human natures together in one person and enables him to then do what the focus is in the Bible, and that's accomplish all the things we've been talking about in this series of why Jesus was born, why he came in the way he did for us. We saw that Jesus was born to deliver us from death. We saw that he gives us eternal life, as Randy brought us to John 3, 16 and 17. Kenny talked about Jesus being born to call sinners to repentance, and Jackson bringing slaves into being adopted sons. And today, we're, we're concluding this Christmas series of why Jesus was born with Jesus was born to reconcile enemies, to bring those who were enemies back into a relationship of reconciliation. And boy, is this needed. You know, there are days as the father and husband of my family that I get to the end of the day and say, wow, there was a lot of sin in this family today, starting with dad. I think I've got more to repent of than any of us. And I often do before God and my wife and kids. And it's amazing how I've been at this Christian thing a while. <laughs> and my wife is incredible, but our family can be a place of sin and strife and division and a massive lack of love and fruit of the Spirit. I bet you can relate. That's why I'm not concerned about saying that. I don't think you'll fire me because I bet you can relate. So our homes are places of strife, sin, division. This church can be a place of strife and division and people feeling lonely and alienated and struggling. I hear it. I hear it from kids all the way up to we older folks. This church can be a difficult place to be like any local church, even though in my experience this local church is incredibly healthy in getting after the gospel. It still has plenty of sin alive and well and active. You look at our community. There's so much sadness. Every once in a while, I'll get a glimpse into this, the sadness at La Mirada High School. You look at our country. <laughs> Man, I, I'm just not sure we've really made any progress in how much we love each other ever since I was little in my lifetime. I'm not sure we've made progress. I know things have improved in many ways, practically speaking, and even legally and policy-wise, but in the human heart, do we really love more than we did when I was born in 1964? I'm just not so sure about that. You look at the world. I had a strange interest in the news when I was a kid. 
even a little kid. My mom was really into politics and the news and would rant all the time about Nixon and different things. But, and so I took an interest in the news, and I've been paying attention to the news as long as I can remember. And I know there hasn't been a day of my life where the Israeli-Palestinian conflict hasn't been front-page news. It's just been amazing how throughout my life there's just so much darkness and division and hatred and animosity and alienation and sin. If you really pay attention, it'll, it'll just beat you up. It'll lead you to despair and hopelessness. But as Christians... We're not led to despair and hopelessness. As Christians, we believe that God is alive and he made us and he is working every day, even in the midst of all the really bad news in the headlines and in our own homes. He's, a, he's at work and he's alive and he has promised that he is not only working, but he's working out a redemptive plan that is glorious and victorious. And when we're aligned with him and that plan, our lives can be glorious and victorious even in the midst of all the struggle. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2. And I want you to come away with four points that I think, among others, we could highlight are important takeaways from this passage this morning. The first point I want to make sure we see is let God define reality for you. Not your hunch, not your gut, not your genetic tendencies, not your wounds and scars and hurt from your past, not your good family or your bad family, not your uh, abusive relative or your amazing relative, not how great Christmas was or how hard Christmas was, not your mistakes, not your accomplishments. Let God define reality for you. Two, live in light of that reality that God brings in Christ. Let God define reality for you. Live in light of the reality God brings through Christ and then live your life depending on Christ and exalting Christ primarily from this passage living as reconciled people and ministers of reconciliation. Let God define reality for you. Live in light of his reality. He's brought through Christ. Depend on Christ. Exalt Christ. And finally, out of that, live as reconciled people and ministers of reconciliation. If we grab a hold of God's reality and live in light of it, we will be so radically different than this divided, strife-filled, hate-filled, discord-filled world. These things are prevalent in every level of our society, but we are called to a different reality. We are not called to the status quo, and it can so easily slip into that kind of living if we're not vigilant to live radically different lives than the culture would naturally lead us to live. You know, my grandparents' generation gets bashed all the time these days. People even write books called Not Your Grandparents' Christianity as if that's a good thing. My grandparents 
had relationships with God that were experienced. I've heard it said that in our culture today, our grandparents, my generation's grandparents, their Christian faith was an experience. It was a reality for them. And for a lot of their children, it became an inheritance, something they just inherited. And in my generation, it can easily become a formality. And in my kids' generation, it seems to become an inconvenience, something that doesn't fit well with the culture. And we need to step back and say, where are we in that sort of progression? Does Christ and his person and work define you and your life in a way that causes you to be radically out of step with your culture, which will bring all kinds of rebuke and harsh denunciation, but it will also bring an opportunity to be salt and light and a declaration to the world of what God's able to do in relationships. That's what he calls us to. If we love Christ and his gospel, we will pursue Christ-exalting reconciliation in our lives and the lives of the people, God brings our way. Because as it says in Revelation 5.9, Jesus Christ shed his blood to ransom people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 through 22 has been called the most central and important description of the church in all the Bible. I'm not sure that's true, but you'll be hard-pressed to find one that's more powerful and defining for who we are as the people of God. What's happened in, cha in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is Paul lays out as clearly as he possibly can what it means to be reconciled to God. He tells us that we were all by nature, not by things we had done over time, not by an amount of sin we had done or by a kind of sin we had done, but we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're all in this thing together. There's something comforting about that and disturbing about that. We're all sinners. None of us... Needs Jesus more or less than anybody else. We're all sinners. We're all in this together. We're by nature children of wrath. The fundamental description of human beings in this fallen world is in rebellion against God. And when we think about being reconciled to our enemies, the first thing we need to realize is that we start off as enemies of God. We are the enemies. We're enemies of God. That's how the Bible describes us. We have hatred toward God. And even if that hatred in your life looks mostly like passivity toward God, it's still hatred toward him. It's disowning your creator, the one who owns your life. And so we are enemies of God. And the first reconciliation that needs to take place is we need to be reconciled to God. And that's exactly what he does in chapter 2. Verse 1, we're told we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We were following the power of the ear, the spirit of, that's work in the sons of disobedience, carrying out the passions of the flesh, the desires of the body and mind, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But look at God, step in in verse 4 with his amazing grace, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. What has done this? Your works? No. His immeasurable riches of his grace. End of verse 7. In kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, we've been saved by grace through faith. 
It's not what we do, it's what he's done for us to make us new creatures in Christ. If you're unclear on this gospel, please don't leave here today. That's the good news, that we are born enemies of God, and by his gracious provision through his son, we are reconciled to him by faith in the finished work of Christ. If you have a lack of clarity on this, please don't leave here today without clarity. We have lots of people here who love Jesus and understand this truth very well. Would you do this, actually? If you're, if you're an elder at Grace, a deacon at Grace, uh, if, if you're a couple who leads a Grace group, would you stand up? Okay. If you're unclear on the gospel I was just talking about, please look around. So find one of these people and ask them what in the world I was talking about. And any one of them will be able to tell you and lead you to a full understanding of the gospel and hopefully repentance and faith in Jesus. See them? They are ministers of the gospel. Thanks, friends. Okay. That's the gospel. And now, see, in chapter 4, Paul really moves toward the practical, the exhortative. He never leaves behind these realities of the good news of God for us in Christ. But he gets very practical. But he also starts that here in chapter 2. Because in verse 11, he, he goes from this, this vertical reconciliation we have with God. We were enemies, and now we're friends. We were opposed to God, and now we're children adopted by him into his family. Where we're just children of wrath, we just had judgment coming our way, and now we have the inheritance of Christ coming our way. And now he tells us what that means for our horizontal reconciliation. See, the Bible never leaves it just you and God, ever. It always translates it into you and everybody else in light of who you are before God. And that's what happens beginning of verse 11. You ready? Help us, Lord, now as we go to your word. Verse 11. Therefore, see, see in light of verses 1 through 10, therefore, in light of who you are in Christ now, remember he's writing to Gentiles, primarily here in Ephesus, and he says, remember, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, the one, ones who didn't have this outward physical symbol of this inward covenant relationship with God called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So Gentiles, non-Jews, were considered a different people, an other people, a people who were, were not part of the covenant people. You know, Gentiles did that too. They're, they had sort of a class system, and, and there, were, there were Greeks and there were barbarians. They looked at different people groups even within the Gentiles in different ways. Now, part of this distinction between Jew and Gentile is something God created and actually used the Jewish people, the Israel nation, to bring about, as we saw in Genesis, this covenant Reality that brings redemption. But the point was always that this redemption would move beyond the Israelites to the whole world. Remember what God says to Abraham, I will be your God, you will be my people, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. That second half gets left off so often in Jewish thinking. It was always to create one people in the midst of the ethnic diversity. Remember, Look, he says it again. 
in verse 12. Remember that you were at, a, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. First thing I want you to realize is twice here, in the first two verses, he says, remember. Remember. Don't forget. Now, it's not new information he's calling them to understand. He's calling them to remember things they already know, which is usually what we do when we come to church. If you just come to church for new information, you're really going to be disappointed a lot of the time here. Because so much of what we do is remembering what we already know. Why? Because we're really forgetful. We are, what's the Lord's Supper? You know, when you gather, get together, get some bread, get some wine, and remember what Jesus did for you. How many times? When you get together. Like five? No, when you get together. Why? Because you'll forget otherwise. We're just relearning, remembering. And that's what he's saying. Remember, don't forget who you were. Don't forget you were an object of wrath. Don't forget you were not part of the people of God. And he's saying, remember, remember, because we easily forget. Remember who God is, what he's done for you, and who you are in Christ. And live in light of that reality. That's what's going on in verses 11 through 22. Uh, Grab a hold of your identity in Christ and then work that out, not just before God, but before everybody you have a relationship with. And even seek relationships with people you otherwise never would if you weren't a reconciled child of God. Love this word, commonwealth. It's a description of a distinct uh, entity of people, but it comes from this, this word commonweal, co- the, the commonwellness, the, the provisions of this people group, this, this commonwellness that comes with being part of the people of God. You were alienated from that. It wasn't part of your You were separated from it. You were strangers. You were aliens. You weren't part of the people. And that meant you had no hope. Having no hope and without God in the world. It didn't mean these Gentiles had no God. It's just their God, as it says over and over again in the Bible, is no God. Though they had a God they worshipped, but it's no God. It's an idol. It's an empty God. It's not the one true God. Without hope, without God in the world. But look at verse 13. It's like verse 4 above. But now. Okay, so we're getting this contrasting picture of what they were with who they are now. When I say, let God define reality for you, this is what I mean. It is so easy to develop an idea of ourselves we got when we were little or through experiences of one kind or another, through a personality test, an Enneagram Oh, I'm an eight all the way. And and before you know it, we're just stuck in these perceptions we've gotten that may have helpfulness and truth to them, but they can also define us in ways that aren't seeking the redemptive power of God in our lives. And before you know it, our whole identity is wrapped up in one experience we had when we were eight or 18 
In, in one reality within our family or uh, abuse we've experienced or real success we've experienced, all these things. I was like, Don Allen, he was a good golfer and that became an idol to him. It doesn't have to be bad things that define us. It can be good things that define us. But they still end up being idols if they become the definition of who we are rather than who we are in Christ, rather than who God has made us in him. And we are so wrapped up in identity these days of one kind or another. Most of us are starting to preface our statements with, well, as a man or woman or mother or father or grandmother or white person or black person. Or, well, as a, and, and now that's this driving reality. And all those things are important to think about and understand and appreciate and celebrate or repent of or be healed from. But they don't define us. There's this identity culture where we're, we're trying to find who we are in all of these things that aren't irrelevant, but they're not central. We are the people of God. We are the redeemed people of God. So all of these things which can be wonderful or significant in our lives don't define us. We let God define reality for us now. Again, please don't hear me as saying those things aren't important and it's not important to understand those things. But, but I've, I'm more and more so concerned that those things define us. Jesus defines us. He's the one who defines us. But now, verse 13, in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near. How? Religious practice. No, the blood of Christ. His sacrificial death on a cross. Now watch how many times Jesus keeps showing up in this passage. I'll give you a hint. It's 12. The blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He doesn't just give us peace, reconciliation with God. He is our peace. He is the source of it. He personifies peace. And please don't reduce peace to a feeling you may or may not have. It means God's not at war with you anymore. He's called, he, he's, he's called, uh, call, call, uh, called a peace treaty, right? That's what he's done. He, he's declared the war is over whether you feel it or not. Jesus is that peace. He's their source of peace. He, Jesus, halfway through verse 14, has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh. He's made two things one thing. It's not that Jews become Gentiles or Gentiles become Jews. Those who are outside are now attaining the status of those. No, he's made a new thing. He's made a new reality that didn't exist before in the church. He does this as our peace who made us both one, Jew and Gentile here. The ethnic distinctions are broken down. Our, uh, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh. There it is, that idea of in his humanity, in his physical flesh and dying on the cross, the dividing wall of hostility. Now this wall probably has a physical and spiritual component to it. Probably referring to a literal wall separating Gentiles in the temple or tabernacle from the place of sacrificial worship that only Jews could go to. And there was actually a warning over the entrance from the court of the Gentiles saying that any Gentile who passes through here, 
will bear the guilt for his death. And do you know what's very interesting? Do you know what Paul was finally condemned for? And his church history tells us beheaded for? Do you know the charge against him that stuck among the Jews? You know what it was? Bring a Gentile into the temple. And that Gentile was from Ephesus, believe it or not. And now he's saying, although he wasn't guilty of doing that, he's, he's given a rationale for the reality that, yes, now all have access by faith, all, regardless of human distinctions, into the very presence of God. How does he do this? He breaks down the dividing wall of hostility, the one that stood between us and God, and literally in the temple, he's broken it down. In his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility, verse 15, how does he do that? By abolishing the law of commandments, expressed in ordinances. So we're condemned by the law, he fulfills the law. We don't keep it, he keeps it for us, and therefore abolishes it as the standard by which we have to come to God. He removes the guilt of the moral law. He fulfills the requirements of the sacrificial and ceremonial law. He does it for us. And what does this result in? Listen, that he might create in himself one new man. Jesus Christ begins an entirely new thing, an entirely new kind of humanity that follows the resurrected Lord into the very presence of God. Verse 16, Uh, one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I love that phrase. Jesus kills hostility. And how does he do this? He came and preached peace. So he is peace, he preaches peace, going right back to Isaiah that talked about the Messiah coming who will preach peace. We bring tidings of good news. What does the angel say when Jesus is born? Peace on earth, goodwill to man. But it doesn't end there, you know. Most people end it there. It goes on, on whom his favor rests. It's not just general peace to all of humanity. No, the peace of God comes through Christ, through the Messiah of God, only through the Messiah. Jesus comes, and that doesn't just bring peace to the world. That's obvious. He will bring peace one day, but he'll come with a sword as well. And the only ones who will have ultimate peace are the ones who have found him as our peace, as our Sabbath rest, as our shalom, as our harmony as our oneness restored in him. He kills the hostility. He brings peace in its place and draws those who are far near, verse 18. For through him, we both have access, all of us, Jews, Gentiles, in one spirit to the Father. Do you see the Father, Son, Spirit, Trinitarian nature of this reconciling work? One spirit to the Father. He brings it. The Spirit accomplishes it. The Father has willed it. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, which we all were, but you're fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, 
There he is again, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This cornerstone is, is the first corner that is erected when you're building a building, and it not only gives the support the building needs, it gives it its structure, its dimensions, it, the trajectory of all the other corners. And Jesus is this cornerstone. He's referred to several times. Old and New Testament as the cornerstone, the one in whom this building he's building, which is the church, is based on. He becomes the defining reality, the, the basis of the whole structure. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. What was the temple? It was the place you met with God. Jesus says this temple's going down because I am the temple you've been waiting for. But then... When he commissions his disciples and the Great Commission takes root in here over 2,000 years later, it's taken root in our lives. We become, the church becomes the temple where people are to meet the truest temple in Jesus. So we went from being strangers, aliens, enemies of God to now the church with all our foibles and frailties and sin but nevertheless, the people of God who he has created to be one new reality where people are to meet God himself. We're a holy temple in the Lord. In him, there's Jesus again. You're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God dwells in us now. Not just in us as individuals, but in our collective experience as the people of God. In our collective relationships as the people of God. And we need to live in light of this reality. We're now one creation. <clears throat> we were all one in being created by God in his image, but that was terribly marred and lost and distorted in the fall. And now that oneness before God and one another is only restored in Christ, where he makes us his people. And the vertical reconciliation leads to horizontal rec reconciliation Sin has brought separation at every level and Christ brings reconciliation at every level and we move from separation to reconciliation in Christ. Did you hear all the contrasting pictures between who we were and who we are now? And so often in my life, I can feel a whole lot more like who I was rather than who I am. And God is calling us to grab a hold of our royal inheritance and our identity in him and live in light of that every day of our lives. And then we will have the ability to not only be reconciled to God, but be used by God as ministers of reconciliation. And when you put a whole bunch of us together, look out. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to be. Those who know God and call others to be reconciled to him. And we do that against the backdrop of our reconciled relationships starting with our own families. Jesus comes and preaches peace. He's the point. And so we rest in him, we exalt in him, and then we live our lives as reconciled people and ministers of reconciliation. We are a church full of reconciled people to God and one another. And we are to be a light of the world in the little corner God's given us here in La Mirada as Grace Evangelical Free Church. I love this church. I love this church family. I, I, we as a family are overwhelmed all the time about how incredibly gracious God has been to our family by giving us this church family. I can't imagine our life without this church family. 
And we as a church have this tremendous privilege of having lives that matter for eternity, that can be so radically different than the way things just naturally are. I don't know if you've ever seen our ministry values, but we have 10. And I want you to look at ministry value 8 called Unified Diversity. We are, to reflect, uh, to reflect the diversity of the body of Christ around the world, we desire our fellowship to be intentionally intergenerational and diverse. The church is a community which has Jesus as our head, our shared faith in Christ, not our common interests, hobbies, or personalities, is the primary basis of our fellowship. We want our fellowship among believers as integrated as possible. We believe that believers of all ages, walks of life, races, spiritual maturity, should be developing relationships. Therefore, we strive for our corporate worship and small groups to reflect the beautiful diversity of the family of God. The church in America is sadly segregated by race and socioeconomic status. Therefore, we believe that it is a mistake to further segregate our already segregated churches when we walk through the church doors. This is one of the ways grace is different than a lot of churches. And we're not patting ourselves on the back thinking we're all that because we are after this. But I think a passage like this so strongly encourages us to go after a kind of relationship in our lives and in among our people that makes the world say, what? How do you two even know each other? Never mind like each other. Never mind love each other like family. How does that work? You know, my wife Donna did, her, did a lot of research on Christian college students' conceptions of community. And even those students who now, uh, she did it a few years ago, and now a lot of them are leading the church, even if they would have theological basis for their idea of relationships and community, when she would actually start to unpack what their relationships are like when they really understood community, you know what it boiled down to? Hobbies. We both like to surf, so we're tight. Musical interests and, and just these common things that actually bring people all over the world together. We need to be people who love one another like family, not because we have all these common interests or experiences or skin colors or, or backgrounds. Look, I think it's perfectly fine to hang out with people who like the Dodgers. <laughs> or your musical style. I think, I'm not saying those things are irrelevant. I have a friend, he started dating a woman who was 21 and he was 30. And it, that was the big issue, you know. And he came to me and he said, Eric, Amy and I went out on a date and I don't know if this can work. I said, why? He said, wow. He, Eddie loves music. He said, I, I played Earth, Wind, and Fire for her. <laughs> and all she said was, why does he sing so high? <laughs> he said, could I possibly marry a woman? And that's all she's got to say about Earth, Wind, and Fire. I love Earth, Wind, and Fire. I, I, was, I was feeling him. I, I, I knew he was, I was saying, yeah, that's, that could be a deal breaker. I, but, but they got married. She loves Earth, Wind, and Fire now. And she's taught him to appreciate things he hadn't before too. But so those things aren't irrelevant. Oh, we're, we're to enjoy and appreciate and, and celebrate 
beautiful differences and diversity that God's created in the world to be sure. But Jesus defines us. He's the one who brings us together. And we need to not just tolerate that kind of fellowship. We need to pursue it with all we've got. Because that's when Jesus will be exalted. Our society, our culture today is so divided and and angry and hostile. What's the solution? Do away with differences? No, have a beautiful gospel-enabled unity in the midst of those differences. Southern California is a great place to do this, isn't it? Remember, I was, I was filling my car with gasoline in Santa Fe Springs not long after we moved here. And I'm looking around, and I don't see any white people but me. All I hear is Spanish music. All I see is Spanish words. All I smell is Hispanic food. It's just, and I'm standing putting gas in my car, and I thought, if someone knocked me out and dropped me here, I would swear I'm in Mexico right now. And I love this. This is so cool. And I had this thought. I bet some people are terrified by this. I bet some people hate this. Not Christians, right? Christians, you know, let me talk about immigration for just a quick minute. Um, I think there's room for lots of good differences of opinion and conversations about immigration and how our country should handle it. But given our tendency to have disdain for people different than we are, however we talk about it as Christians, let's never even give a hint that our views are based on a disdain for those different no matter what. Let's just make sure that people know we love people. And when they're Christians, we consider them family no matter what. And if you ever were to go to a church where one of your brothers or sisters weren't welcomed, that you'd go out with them when they left because they're family. What's really family to you? What does it really mean to be the people of God in a place like Southern California? I mean, I'm just looking around this congregation now. There's every skin tone imaginable right there. Now, I happen to be a racial minority in my own home. (laughs) And when you add up my extended family, I'm still a racial minority. We got Blasians and black people and... People were not even sure what they are. And, and, uh, and do you love that? Do you love this ability we have to show the world something only the gospel can accomplish? Do you love that? Do you know they're saying by 2050, the United States will be a majority minority country? I could read you lots of statistics, but... White people will not be the majority when you add up all the other races by 2050. How does that make you feel? Do you say, what an amazing opportunity? Or is there fear? Or is there possessiveness or greed? What, what does that do to you? Are you? Do you feel threatened by that or resentful by that? Or if you are a minority, triumphal in that in some way? 
Where do you say, wow, we really have the opportunity in this subculture of Southern California to display the people of God and all this radically gospel-defined unified diversity that will make the gospel advance in our world? What's keeping you from being reconciled to God and to other people? We need to start in our own homes, our own marriages. Are you an obstacle to reconciliation? Well, you should repent. Are you passive about it? I still think we should repent if that's the case. We are to be pursuing reconciled relationships, especially with those different than we are that we have a hard time with. I think one of the worst things, now this is opinion here, we could have good conversations. I'm going in opinion, I'm going a little off-road here, but I think one of the worst things that happened 40 years ago in the church growth movement was this thing called the homogeneous unit principle. This idea that if you want your church to grow, give people all these little groups of people just like them, age-wise and hobby-wise and in, in all these ways. And the problem with that is it works numerically. We like comfortable. We like easy. You know, my wife was in residence life. She was an RD at a couple of Christian schools. And she would often have these roommate conflicts about October. These two women would come down. We need different roommates. We, we need a different room. We got to move out. This isn't working. We're not clicking. This will never work. We have in, basically un, an unreconcilable relationship. And Donna would say, wait, wait, let me get this straight. You're both women. You're both 19. You're both white. You both like Switchfoot. You're both from the Midwest. And you just can't get along. How in the world are you going to love some woman from Uganda? How's that going to work? <laughs> or maybe you can pull that off on a mission trip for two weeks and put it on Instagram, and, and that, that'll work. But, but in your real life, do you have relationships that show the power of the gospel at work, bringing reconciliation and family love with people you otherwise wouldn't even know, never mind love like brothers and sisters? That's what God's calling us to in this passage, working this out. So many things keep us from this. I came across this list of things that keep us from unity and harmony and this kind of fellowship among the people of God, this kind of reconciliation among the people of God. I found this list of things that keep us from this sort of unity in diversity and corresponding passages that defeat those obstacles. The first one is Satan. Satan will keep us from this kind of unity in our relationships, in this church, in our families. You know what the Bible says? The Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Let God define your reality. Maybe guilt, maybe you feel guilty and you're paralyzed by guilt for, for things you've done or haven't done or haven't accomplished. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Guilt should never paralyze us. Pride often keeps us from moving across the street moving across the aisle, moving across the bedroom to talk to this person we need to be reconciled to. Pride. How could you have pride to keep you from that when you read, by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Talk about a kill your pride verse. Maybe you're hopeless. Maybe you don't think it'll work. Well, if you put all your faith in just political programs and policies, which we need, which we need to pursue, we need to go after righteousness and justice in our society. 
And even though it can't change a human heart, we still seek those things, like Martin Luther King said. Laws can't make you love me, but they can keep you from lynching me. Which I think is pretty important, he said. So we seek laws, but we seek ultimately heart transformation by the gospel. We're not hopeless because nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Maybe you feel inferior or full of self-doubt. Listen to 1 John 3. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. Maybe you're greedy. Maybe you don't like people moving in to your neighborhood, your house maybe, which is what biblical hospitality is. You know, biblical hospitality isn't just bringing your best friends over. It's actually inviting people to your house who just may steal something. Or maybe we'll say something your kids have never heard before. See, biblical hospitality is willing to be risky in that sort of way. Greed, but listen to Philippians 3. I count everything loss for the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. Maybe just hate people. You just have hate toward people and you give yourself permission to do it because of experiences in your life. Listen to Ephesians 4. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Maybe you're just fearful of the whole thing. It's confusing, isn't it? I find it very confusing, and I've thought long and hard about these things for a long time. I remember one time I was walking down the street in grad school, and a guy walked by me and had a shirt that said, love sees all colors. 20 minutes later, I walked by another guy, and it said, love sees no color. And I thought, which is it? <laughs> I'm confused. Well, it's both, right? It's both, depending on what we're talking about. These things aren't simplistically understood. Maybe fear. Well, you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Maybe you're just apathetic. That's the cool thing in our day. But listen, Christ gave himself for us to purify us as a people for himself who are zealous for good works. Let's go after relationships that are going to be hard. And maybe you need to start in your own kitchen and move out from there. We need to pray. Would two or three of you pray that we would be these kinds of people? And all the better if you pray in a language that's not English. Would two or three of you pray for us, please?